Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, he's back. He's our history buddy. He teaches history at the college level up around the Raleigh area in North Carolina. He's also an author in his own right, wrote some local histories, working on some more in the future, we're told. Eric Medlin, frequent contributor to Ordinary-Times.com. How are you, sir? Fantastic. How are you doing, Andrew? Uh, great having you back again. You wrote an absolutely amazing piece. Uh, we had it in Ordinary-Times.com. It's called In Defense of Useful History. Let's preface it this way. Like everything else with social media, we have superstar historians on social media now. Uh, we have a higher, uh, I don't know how you want to call it, a higher ability to dig into history because we have these great devices in the palm of our hands that have the entire depth and breadth of human history in them. All we got to do is ask Google about it. What's the proper use for history when we're dealing with breaking news like a like the war in Ukraine? We all know we can go and look into the background of it. But what's the proper use? You're a historian, so doing stuff in real time isn't really your thing, and yet people like me, that's what I do. I usually go to history first for parallels and to try to get my bearings on things, but as a history teacher, how do you see it? What's the proper usage there? Well, I think that history provides precedence, and it provides context, and it provides something that we don't have as much nowadays in our social media age. We get a lot of phenomena where it seems like something has never happened before and we don't know how to process it. And our approach is usually fear and hyperbole and shock and it's the end of the world or it's the end of society or it's the end of capitalism or whatever, nuclear war, something along those lines. And I feel like history provides this safe anchor, this this comforting voice saying this has happened before it had this particular outcome. But one of the outcomes is that we're still here and that we're still around. We still have society. We still have creature comforts and and our, our livelihoods and our structures and our familiarity. And that's good or bad in some ways and in some different contexts. We still have problems. We still have issues. But history, to me, is very helpful in showing, okay, Conditions similar to the ones happening right now, happening in the the public intellectual sphere like you're talking about, have happened. Here's how people of the past navigated them, made the best of them, made them work out. And here's what they did right. And here's what they did wrong. And I think that that's the role of history in in the public intellectual space. It's not to 
to just bolster a simple political argument or to make the most dramatic point possible for clicks and likes and retweets. It's to provide context and to help us figure out uh, what to do going forward. Part of this comes from uh, a line I use on this program a lot. I use it in my writing too, but I always talk about things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Well, history is that sequence to get it there. When we apply it to something like Ukraine, which is very complicated because Look, this is a region of the world that um, is always in flux. Uh, Ukraine, the land space, not not just the people and the cultural group, has been under domination by outside forces for as long as we have recorded human history, not just the Russians. You can go all the way back to Genghis Khan if you really want to. That This goes way back. How do we start parsing through history when we have a really complicated current event like this? And you have somebody like Vladimir Putin who comes out with an untruth like, well, Ukraine's never been its own country. It's never been its own people group. Well, history is what we would go to to prove or disprove that fact. What's a good way for folks to kind of dig into something like that? Because you're talking about thousands of years of human history, but we have this pressing need to kind of get through it in a big hurry because we got tanks rolling at us. How do we handle that? Exactly. And I think that that's a concept that historians have to be familiar with, and especially historians trying to do this kind of public intellectual work. History is what's known as a chaotic event. There, The butterfly effect applies. There are thousands and thousands of different events and thousands and thousands of possible precedents. And so what I think we need to do is when we have a an event such as Ukraine, what we need to do is kind of start with the most, I don't know, I don't know what one could say, try to find the closest parallel, try to find the parallel where the the circumstances fit the best. Like uh, the one that I used in a piece I had for Arc Digital was the, um, was the, the, the Hungarian revolution of 1956. That was a country very close to the, the, uh, orders of Russia. It was in the USSR. There was a revolution. Uh, The Russians and the Warsaw Pact countries sent in tanks and crushed the revolution. That was very close and it had lots of, of parallels to the present day. And so you're trying to find an event that has parallels, that has similarities, and also that that tells a story and that makes a point about different responses to that event that we can have. So you look at Hungary is in this, the, the Hungarian revolution, 1956 is in this particular uh, explosive geopolitical moment, similar to today, but not exactly the same. And then, you know, the countries, England, uh, France, the United States responded in a particular way. And, they're going to respond at this time. And so it's just kind of trying to find the most helpful parallel, not the parallel that's going to get you the most attention, like mentioning Hitler in the context of uh, history and public relations. We're talking to our buddy, uh, Eric Medlin, a historian. We have a recency bias anytime we're dealing with history, especially in the public sphere, especially on social media. But you just alluded to it, this Sector of the Soviet Union looms really, really large here for a lot of very good reasons. Uh, historically, this is, you know, they were under Ukraine was under Soviet domination. Uh, Putin's a KGB guy from the Soviet days. Um, it's an it's an inescapable 
conversation here because we have the Cold War, which the West sees as this great victory, this great um, this great triumph of humanity over a bad system. And then we get reminded that there's bad actors like the Putins of the world who saw that as a terrible wrong that needs to be righted. Even though it's a recency bias a little bit, there's a lot of learning to be done on things like the Cold War that we don't think about this way, but that's over a generation gone now. And maybe we haven't retaught some of those lessons properly. And then something like Ukraine happens and all of a sudden people are like, oh, my goodness, why are these folks fighting? And we need to reteach it again. How much of history is just being repetitive with it? Because every 5, 10, 15 years, you've got a new generation and you've got to teach this stuff all over again, don't you? Well, that's exactly right. And something that happens with many different historical events and it happened with the, the Soviet Union and our understanding of the USSR is the new availability of sources. USSR opened up its archives in the early 90s. There's this fascinating story of how researchers rushed in to, to get these, these papers before they were going to be you know, spread to all four corners of the earth. And a lot of those papers helped historians re, uh, re-litigate the Soviet Union and re-litigate the story of those past several decades. And so, and then they, they published books and articles and they taught the, the things that were, were that, that the West had gotten wrong about the Soviet Union and that the earlier histories had gotten wrong. And so there's always more sources. And also mid to late nineties, Soviet Union falls out of the headlines. People maybe aren't as listen, listening as much to those new histories. And so public attention, new sources, new historians with new methodologies, all of that plays into this, what you're saying, this need to reteach history over and over and over again. The events happened, they stayed the same, but our sources and our approach and our mindset and the attention we're paying changed. Talking to Eric Medlin, our history friend, frequent contributor at Ordinary-Times.com, published author in his own right. Okay, when you take something really big, like a shooting war, like this is pretty much the largest land war in Europe since World War II, this is a consequential event. As a historian, when you start looking at this, do you start making little mental notes as it's happening, knowing that you're going to have to go back and stu- you're going to be studying this for pretty much the rest of your life? Like, <laughs> this is going to be a big deal for, for the next 50, 60, 70 years. Do you kind of start taking little notes as it's happening, as it's developing? Like, okay, I need to go back and research this. Okay, here's a parallel I'm going to look at later. Oh, here's this story. This don't feel exactly right. I want to leave this one alone and come back to it later. How are you viewing this as a historian as it's unfolding in front of us? Well, you're really reading the the, the first draft of history from from journalists, from people who are on the ground, people who are analyzing the situation in your New York Times, your Atlantic, your New Yorker, all of those different things, you you get the the real-time analysis and information. And you try to, just as a historian, you're just a publicly interested person. You want to see what's happening. You want to see where it's going to go. And you do you kind of take notes, you see what, what might be relevant, you see what you may want to come back to later, how something will will develop, um, and what earlier pr- process um, is starting to look like it might happen again. Like I keep posting um, 
about and telling people that Ordinary Times needs to have a, uh, I think it's a mud week or a tire week or something along those lines, because there's this there's this idea that maybe you know one of the things holding Russia back was the the, uh, the melting snow and the mud and the poor logistics and does that harken back to those earlier invasions of Russia in the early 19th century. And usually as a historian, you want to be careful making too many parallels between the modern information age and the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, because they're so fundamentally different in so many different ways. Those people would be alien to us and we would be alien to them. But in some particular ways, if you start looking at situations that are unfolding, you can start to see maybe those earlier helpful parallels can teach us something about what's going on. Yeah, I am a logistics guy. I'll tell you with 100% certainty, the Russians' logistics suck. We know they suck for years and years and years. And now you got the evidence because they don't know how to do logistics. They don't prioritize it. Uh, we treat our logistics as a weapon system in the U.S. military. That's why we're so great at what we do. And they don't. And you're seeing the results of it. But that's another story for another day. Uh, historian Eric Medlin, we're going to continue with him in a minute. We're going to go into an example that he wrote about in Ordinary Times, some pushback about using history in real time like that, and also talk about uh, a habit of some of the, uh, we'll call them Twitter famous historians to get into the prediction business, which is a little antithetical to being a historian. We'll get into all that. Our friend Eric Medlin, historian, more heard tell right after Welcome back to Herd Tell. We're talking a little history in real time. Our buddy, Eric Medlin, he's a history teacher in the Raleigh area at the college level, frequent contributor to Ordinary-Time.com and a public published author in his own right, writing some local histories. We'll talk about those in a little bit. Okay. You took an example in your piece uh, in defense of a useful history in Ordinary Times. There's some pushback that some, some people make about using history in real time. Uh, Jonathan Katz, you pointed out to this piece that he wrote, he had a little bit of skepticism of history in the public intellectual debates over Ukraine. Just lay that out because I don't agree with everything he says, but I see that he has, I think he has some salient points, at least of how to address and look at some of these issues, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And he, the, the issue with that piece, and I love Jonathan Katz, I saw that piece because I follow him and read a lot of work that he does. The The issue that he had was he jumped to the the example that I mentioned earlier of, of everything is Hitler, everything is World War III, everything is Munich and Nazi Germany and, and nuclear war and all that. So he saw history as leading to the, the use of history as leading to hyperbole, which I I thought that if one uses history for that purpose, that's that's not a good use of it. And so he had a point there. And he also mentioned what, what I talked about earlier, the the chaotic nature of history that, you know, you don't want to use one precedent because there are thousands and thousands of possible precedents. And I don't think that that's particularly helpful. It's a chaotic system. History is a chaotic system, but that doesn't mean that you can't learn anything from it. It's like the weather is a chaotic system and you don't fire the weatherman. You know, you don't fire the meteorologists because they get things wrong sometimes. You 
glean the information that you can, you use the tool, even though it's imperfect. And so I think that cats, what cats really wanted, I think deep down was just a better use of history and better, um, more reasonable, more studied, less doom and click worthy history. This is a lot bigger question, but I'm going to pose it to you anyway. There's a real problem with history and historians in that they don't, and and this is not you know exclusive to historians. We're not picking on them here. All all the academic disciplines have this problem, but historians especially sometimes they don't know what to do with healthy skepticism in their discipline field. And what I mean by that is the reason Katz doesn't really get there, but he kind of dances around it. The reason we keep going to World War II is that's one of the few things in history that is really clear cut. There was a definitive good guy. There's a definitive. That's as close to good guy, bad guy, black and white as you get in history. And I think that's why we go back to it so frequently is it, it, it stays in the parlance because that's the easiest one to understand. And sometimes historians, you know, they they struggle with the proper use. You touched about it on your piece. You know, you said Cass's piece is a tidy argument for skepticism and historical analysis by public intellectuals. Sometimes we don't know how to really use skepticism in a healthy way because part of history, yeah, it's chaotic, but there are facts and truth to be found in here. And yeah, there's gray areas, but you still got to get to Hitler's evil somewhere in there, right? And that's the extreme example, but that's why people go to World War II, isn't it? Because that's the one they can get their head around. Is, is that what you think the case is? Yeah, I think that that's a good point. And, and this was actually uh, what, my, what my master's thesis was about many moons ago. Uh, was about the the role of historians in the public sphere and historians as public intellectuals. And the historical profession has become more, over the past 40, 50 years or so, historical profession has become much more standardized and dependent on the PhD and dependent on academic work and the use of jargon and all that fun stuff. And so the profession has moved kind of past much of the public. Much of the public is still buying, you know, your David McCullough's and your Doris Kearns Goodwin's and your basic stories of good versus evil. The David McCullough building the, the Brooklyn Bridge is neat, things like that. And the academic historians are focusing on very complicated structures of power and, and discourses between different groups that don't that don't lend themselves easily to public intellectual analysis. And there's this real desire, there's this real demand for it. And so people are turning to non-historians and they're turning to maybe historians who are very who are much better at talking to social media than they are at looking at history, analyzing sources, making arguments that are not influenced by their ideology, but actually by the sources, colored by their own interpretation, of course, but actually based on the historical sources, on the truth and the facts. Yeah, there's been a running joke about uh, there's David McCullough, the narrator of history, and David McCullough, the writer of history, and never the twain will meet. Um, kind of goes to what you're talking about. Uh, talking to our buddy Eric Medlin, uh, historian in his own right, published author in his own right. Uh, let's just to use one example, since we're talking about World War II, Neville Chamberlain, you mentioned him in your piece. Here's one where it looks like it's pretty clear cut. Oh, he appeased the Nazis. He's a bad guy. There's the famous photo of him waving the paper and going, peace in our time, which was, you know, foolhardy. But then we forget the parts about 
yeah, he's the guy that prioritized the Royal Air Force and built it up. And that's what kind of kept the Nazis out of England and saved England until we entered the war. And that's just one example of this stuff gets really complicated if you get past the the buzzwordiness of it. So, yeah, Neville Chamberlain had that bad photo op. He he got virally canceled to put it in the normal parlance. But then but he's also had a hand in the part that saved England until we came into the war and the war evolved. As a historian, when you go to teach something like that, like a Neville Chamberlain, like a U.S. president that's problematic, like a Nixon or a, or whoever, pick one. How do you go about getting into those gray areas of like, yes, your perception is mostly true, but what we really need to learn to apply to today is in that 10, 15, 20 percent that's gray area at the same time? Yeah, and that's something that the historical profession does that I don't think some people fully understand outside of the historical profession. They think that there's there's one story, there's one interpretation, like Neville Chamberlain at Munich. And actually, it just goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it depends on what sources you use, if, if new sources become available, if you focus on this source rather than that source, things like that. But when I have my class, I try to I try to make some sort of an argument. I think that some historians and some history teachers will try to say that they just present all the facts and they let their students make up their minds. And I don't think that that's what your job is as a a history instructor. I think it is to make an argument based on your interpretation of the sources, based on that information, try to make it as well-rounded as possible try not to have your biases influence it to a certain degree um, to what's possible. And then your students, you know, they can have their own interpretation. They can challenge you. They can discuss the topics and there's discussion times and they can raise their hands and ask all that. But it's your job, at least to a certain degree, you can't say, you know, let's say Neville Chamberlain, some people believe this about Neville Chamberlain. Some people believe that about Neville Chamberlain. You figure it out. It, it doesn't work that way. Talking to Eric Madlin. Okay, let's let's go to the kind of the crux of the end of your piece, though. When you're dealing with historians, um, there's some famous ones. We're not going to name drop folks here, but there's a couple of really famous, especially Twitter famous, social media famous historians. You've said they've gotten into the prediction business. I understand the, um, you know, it's like a like a person that covers sports. All of a sudden, now you want to start predicting games because you understand the stats. I get it. I get the temptation. But you touch on the fact that it's like, especially in the public sphere where you're not in it, it it's probably one thing to do it in the academic environment. Uh, in the public sphere where people are looking for some some out-of-context, black-and-white, quick hit, which way is this going to go? you don't feel that's the really good place for a historian to fly the historian flag, do you? Well, you have to be very, very, very careful. And especially on something like predicting what would happen with Ukraine, there's no, there's no ability to do that as a historian. And you're, you're not a seer, you're interpreting sources, you're using sources. And I think that prediction is always a a questionable business with public intellectuals. I've read some research on public intellectuals. They make lots of predictions. They're often untrue. And it's the the nature of the business to just ignore when you have an inaccurate prediction. Just move on. Just keep going. Pretend that it didn't happen. And I think that if you're a historian, 
you and you do make a prediction, you need to acknowledge if you're right or wrong and explain why and explain how. And I feel like most of the people who make those predictions aren't going to do that. And it's just going to kind of cheapen their work. Yeah. Eric Medlin, a historian, a friend of ours. Uh, let's go back to where we started to kind of put a bow on all this. Again, the the events in Ukraine, this is um, not unprecedented, as we've already laid out, because this stuff does, uh, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes a whole lot. And this is kind of a remix. When we look back on this with Ukraine, and we don't know what's going to happen, we're not going to predict the future here. What do you think some of the lessons leading up to it is? Because a lot of people did get it wrong. I, I was one of them. I thought this would be another brinksmanship. I thought he would do brinksmanship or he would go into the controlled regions where they weren't going to really fight him, that sort of thing. Uh, maybe that was wishful thinking on my part, but a lot of people thought that. Um, and then we found out we had the intelligence for months and months ahead of time that this was going to happen. What do you think the lessons in the run up to Ukraine? Because we've got a little bit of space on that part. What do you think the historical lessons on the run up to this is going to be? Other than I think a large portion of the world has just been shocked back in the reality of, oh, yeah, we can have a shooting massive land war in this day and age, which I think historically some people have been lulled to sleep like maybe that wasn't going to happen. But you're a historian. Peace is the exception. War is kind of the constant. What is that the main lesson we're going to take away from this? Or what are you going to think we should take away from this looking forward? Well, I want to touch on two things. One, the domestic front and one, the international front. Domestically, I think that we've had this post-Watergate distrust of institutions that's caused all of these different problems in our society. And one of those institutions is the intelligence field is the, the, the defense department and all that. And they got this one, right. (laughs) They got this one, right. Why did they get this one? Right. What kind of, perhaps what kind of intelligence did they have? How did they predict that? And how should we look at those pronouncements moving forward? I think that that's one thing we need to consider and look back on. These are people that we like to criticize and they're often worthy of criticism, but they got this one, right. Why? And On the international front, I think that it lulls us out of our sense of complacency, as you just mentioned, and it it kind of there's a chance that it's going to bring the 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 world back a little bit, and in a good way, back to this slightly less skeptical time where in in the 20 teens after the Great Recession, there's this real distrust of. Uh, internationalism of the EU, of this this growth in populism, this attachment to authoritarianism, authoritarianism to Russia, and more recently towards Hungary. I think that's going to diminish a little bit. I think we're going to go back to a time where people work together, partially because they were afraid of Russia, and they're going to start being afraid of Russia again. And maybe that's going to lead to a little more collaboration. Now that collaboration is going to happen without the world's largest country by landmass. And how is and that's going to be influential as well. All these other countries are going to have to work together in order to pick up the slack because they're going to keep Russia out of these economic relationships and these political relationships for a good long while. So I see the world in tragedy, the world coming together a little bit more than yeah, we can only hope so. Uh, Eric Medlin, he always does great stuff at Ordinary-Times.com. He also writes his own page at Medium. He has a book out, Local History in North Carolina. Make sure you go check that out. We're always thrilled to have you back. Uh, until folks see you again, though, let them know where you're writing and your social media so they can follow you until we get you back on, my friend. 
Follow me on Twitter at Medlin Writes and ericmedlin.medium.com. And he's uh, just about a weekly write-up at ordinary-times.com. Thrilled to have him. Always a good conversation. You write good stuff, my friend. You do good work. And we appreciate your time greatly today. Appreciate it. Definitely. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks, sir. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.